From Washington, this is Talking Tax. I'm Amanda Icone. Siri Belusu is out on assignment. This week, we hear from the top lawyer who's advising the Internal Revenue Service as the agency continues to issue guidance on the 2017 tax law. That law transformed federal and international rules in the tax code, leaving multinational companies grappling with what those new provisions mean for them. Senior editor Colleen Murphy sat down with the IRS's new chief counsel, Michael Desmond, at the Bloomberg Tax Leadership Forum in New York. He talks about his priorities for the agency and what companies should anticipate from the IRS. Michael, you know, you've been in your role now a couple of months, uh, and I know you were previously at DOJ Tax Policy and had a role in Treasury before, but right. were most recently in private practice right. in uh, a much less humid climate right. in California. <laughs> um, and you come to the IRS at a really important time as the agency is implementing changes from the 2017 tax law. Can you talk a little bit about the perspective that you bring to your role coming sure. from private practice and how that transition has been? Sure. I was just recalling, as Colleen said, um, this is my third or third and a half tour through government. Um, and just recalling that I just moved across the country for the seventh time for a position in government. So with my wife, who actually has embraced each move. But um, as Colleen indicated, I did start my career with the Justice Department Tax <laughs> Division in an enforcement capacity litigating cases um, out in California from an office in D.C. Um, and then my next tour was with the Office of Tax Policy um, as Tax Legislative Counsel from 2005 to 2008. Um, so in those functions, I saw really the two aspects of, of the tax universe, the enforcement side and the policy regulatory side um, at Treasury. So the great thing about my job now is it pulls those two sides together in one position. So I have uh, about 1,500 lawyers working for chief counsel um, in 14 different divisions and associate offices. And about 500 of those are in DC in technical associate office functions, the ones that you're probably reading their work product with the regulations coming out um, under TCGA. And then the 1,000, about 2 thirds, 1,000 lawyers are out in field offices around the country litigating some uh, 25,000 cases that are filed each year in tax court. Um, so that's the basic division. But I think from my perspective, I bring experience both in um, private practice and also on the government side, as I said, both in justice and the enforcement side, and also a treasury perspective. Um, so I've seen the reg writing, the policy calls, and that kind of thing, and now um, have the, the opportunity to bring that together into one position. So it's been, it's been great four months in. And what are some of your top priorities for your office as you're uh, getting settled in? Uh -huh. TCJ implementation is probably the top one um, right now for not only my office, but probably the Treasury Department tax policy and um, for, uh, at least in the tax world, the administration more generally. So um, that's probably the number one priority. We're looking beyond that now as well. So um, I had some conversations this morning about um, you know, the guidance projects, which we're all reading about and trying to understand and, and trying to move along. Um, but we're also moving into uh, the implementation process for TCJA. Um, we're now, for some provisions, you know, more than a year in, we're starting to see um, the cap taxpayers um, issues come up on 965. So we in council's office, um, the folks who were involved in writing the regulations 
and drafting and working with tax policy at Treasury and putting those together are now working with our uh, colleagues on the service side, the examiners, um, for training sessions to bring folks up to speed on the field and the IRS side, um, what these new provisions are, what our regulations do, what the statutes do, um, so that at least initially in the context of cap audits and then going forward in the context of examinations um, more generally and also just general implementation, not necessarily just examinations, but implementation of the TCGA provisions. So um, those are probably the two top priorities to get the guidance out and then also um, to work on implementation. Um, there are a number of other priorities that I am starting to put together that are longer term priorities for me and I think for the Office of Chief Counsel um, that look toward hiring, toward um, you know, what we're going to be doing to work with our clients at the IRS in the longer term. So there are a number of sub-issues to that we can talk about as well. And, and you mentioned training. I know oh. that there's been a focus, especially on the LBNI side. Uh, can you talk a little bit about what that training process has looked like for agents so far? Yeah, and for us on the council side, it's really at the um, kind of top of that pyramid. Um, we've had a lot of council lawyers, um, as we call it, kind of training the trainers. Um, you know, the folks that are um, really, you know, doing the regulations and, and, and have the most immediate knowledge of, of what we've been publishing. I'm um, going out and, and working with, with people on the exam side, on the commissioner's side, who will be training their own agents. Um, so, and we're also um, working to train our own attorneys. So, as I mentioned, we've got about 1,500 lawyers. You know, two-thirds of them are out in the field, will be litigating cases. And also providing advice to examiners. Those field attorneys not only litigate, but also are the ones that are sort of the um, in-house counsel for our um, clients in the operating divisions. So we in counsel have a training effort underway with respect to our attorneys as well, the ones who haven't been involved, um, at least directly, in the guidance projects. Um, so it's sort of a multi-part effort right now, um, focusing on uh, some of the more immediate provisions. 965 in particular is, is one that we focused on since that does have an immediate implementation um, timeline. Mm -hmm. um, but others will fall into line as well um, as time goes on. And as I was coming up with questions for this uh -huh. interview, uh, something that made my job really easy is we've had a lot of big developments in the last couple of weeks that I want to dig into. Uh, so first, we got big news recently on Altera uh -huh. uh, with the Ninth Circuit Court of Appeals siding with the IRS. Right. So last year, there was an LBNI directive that told agents to halt exams on mm -hmm. cost-sharing regulations, given that Altera was still in flux. Mm -hmm. uh, now that we have a decision in that case, what is the agency's plan to move forward on cost-sharing cases? Yeah, and I defer to the LBNI folks as to how they're going to move forward. That's an examination determination. Um, I, I think you're right with the Altera decision, particularly in the cost-sharing space. Um, there were some uncertainties as to how those regulations that were at issue in Altera um, would be implemented going forward on um, what we do with those and how we would be applying those in examinations and in litigation. Um, so I think that was just a prudent measure by LBNI, so I defer to them as to how they're going to move forward. But we, we do have the decision now. Um, we've been looking at that from council's perspective, obviously the cost-sharing regulations, and that, as most of you probably know, the cost-sharing regulations um, have, have a very long history to them um, that goes back many years, even a version of those regulations before um, the version that was at issue in Altera. Um, but I think Altera, from a, a broader perspective, was also important from council's perspective just on um, what it means for our reg writing processes. Um, there are a lot of um, kind of pending issues, and there have been developments um, over the last 10 years, since my last tenure in government, um, on judicial deference issues. So 
all of that comes into play for us um, as we think about how we write regulations, um, how the courts are going to view those regulations, how we're going to be defending regulations um, if and when challenges are brought in court. Um, so the, the kind of judicial deference, judicial um, review of our reg writing process that was at issue in Altura was of, of much broader interest to us. Mm -hmm. So on that front, I think um, we welcome the decision, obviously, um, because it does give us some guidelines and um, informs our reg writing process as well. And that's, as you all know, uh, a very active project. So we are you know, writing regulations under TCGA and, you know, against an evolving judicial backdrop um, as to you know, deference issues and, and, and how um, we and all agencies, frankly, need to be drafting guidance and regulations. So we're paying a lot of attention to it for that reason as well. And that came up, obviously, at, at the Supreme Court yesterday, too, in a, in it a did. broader In the Kizzle case, case, right. Right, right. So the, the hour deference issue. So, yeah, and it is, I think, you know, in the academic world, people are talking about this, and certainly even, you know, we're watching other court decisions. Um, there have been, you know, several. The, the um, Baldwin decision out of the Ninth Circuit is another um, uh, decision involving, you know, regulations that addressed a more discrete procedural issue on um, timely mailing, timely filing under Section 7502, but a case we, we've been watching as well. Um, so a lot is happening on that issue of judicial deference and um, what authority we have and how the courts are going to look at um, what we're doing on the regulatory front. And we obviously pay a lot of attention to that. And as you mentioned, guidance is certainly mm -hmm. a, a top priority and a focus right now as right. TCJA made so many changes. Uh, so we did get a big guidance package mm -hmm. two weeks ago, and the proposed rules on global intangible low-tax income offer a high-tax exclusion mm -hmm. that would let companies opt out of the regime if they're paying foreign taxes of at least 18.9%. And it appears like the anti-abuse provisions in that package of regulations are retroactive, mm -hmm. but that there's some concern that exclusion may not apply to 2018 returns. Um, mm -hmm. Is there any agency consideration about making that high-tax exclusion retroactive? Yeah, and I think I'll just comment more generally. Proposed regulations are proposed regulations. Um, I think in general, I would observe, um, and one of the observations I've had, when we propose regulations, um, you know, our follow-up on that can be multifaceted. Um, oftentimes, we'll propose, and there'll be a final no change. Um, we've seen that in a couple of contexts. The SALT regulations were, were pretty consistent with what we proposed. I think the guilty regulations are an illustration of our flexibility, because what we had originally proposed, you know, we finalized part of them, but then we've gotten some very constructive comments on the high-tax issue. Um, on what to do with, with partnerships, you know, holding interest in CFCs. So I, I think I'd, you know, without commenting on a set of proposed regs, because we are in the process of, of, you know, soliciting comments on those, um, just observe that we try to be flexible um, and, you know, we don't necessarily, you know, just railroad things forward and finalize what we proposed. We're very receptive to comments and on the high techs issue on the proposed guilty, we got a lot of comments. Um, it was a, a different approach, and we thought it appropriate to put out proposed regulations on that so we could get feedback. Um, and that's the, the context that we're in right now on that high-tax um, exception. Also, the, the partnership with respect to subpart F was also proposed as part of that. So I'm very much in the, in the posture of soliciting input on um, how those two provisions in, the, in that package will, um, you know, should be modified, adjusted. It's the typical proposed regulation. Um, solicitation. And speaking of flexibility, uh, companies seem to also be falling in between that 13% guilty threshold and the high-tax exclusion mm -hmm. threshold. So um, from your perspective, could the agency alleviate any of the problems for those kind of in-between companies? 
Um, again, proposed regulations are proposed, so you know it's an open slate for us. That's why we put the ideas out there. Um, and so I think some of those comments have started to trickle in. It's only been a couple weeks, maybe not even two weeks, two weeks tomorrow, that those have been out. So we're definitely in um, a posture of soliciting input and getting those kinds of comments. Um, I have yet to you know, see many of those comments, but we've certainly heard questions like yours being raised mm -hmm. and expect to see more formal submissions. Um, and we read those with you know, great care and detail. So everything will be, you know, considered in terms of input and comments. And thinking a little more broadly, as was mentioned this morning, um, OECD countries have talked about a global minimum tax, mm -hmm. something along the lines of guilty, perhaps. From your perspective, uh, with sort of such a multinational audience here, uh, what would that mean for multinational companies and, and for their tax planning? You know, I can answer that very easily because in council's office, um, we, I like to say, we help make the trains run, but we don't decide where they're going. So what's happening on that front is, is really a policy mm -hmm. you know, development, and it's something that we watch very closely. Um, and we realize that when we're you know, trying to make the trains run and publishing things like the guilty regulations, that does have consequences um, globally mm -hmm. um, as to how our rules are implemented and interpreted and how they're enforced on the, the uh, um, audit and litigation side. Um, but in terms of the policy calls and where that will go or how the IRS or how the United States, I should say, might react to that, um, you know, we read the papers like others, but we do um, defer very much to our colleagues in the Treasury Department Office of Tax Policy as to, um, and I know, you know, Chip has been very, you know, at vocal in his discussions about that. So um, from my position, I, I try to be sure that I'm just a guy who helps to make the trains run and not decide where they're going. But we are watching that from our perspective to be sure that we're informed and when things do develop over time, we're in a position to respond. Mm -hmm. uh, and you'd mentioned the SALT regulations uh -huh. that the agency released a couple weeks ago. So those are looking um, specifically at the workarounds that some states uh, implemented involving uh, allowing residents to donate to right. a state-created charitable fund. Um, is the IRS planning to go after any remaining SALT workarounds in states that weren't um, addressed in those regulations? We've gotten comments on um, entity level um, taxes. Uh, I shouldn't say entity level. Entity level um, provisions where states have, have adopted um, a provision that allows a tax to be paid at, the, at a pass-through entity level. Um, no decisions have been made on how things are going to be responded to. Um, I think, as I said a moment ago, those regulations were largely... Um, you know, finalizing what we had proposed last year. Um, there were some, I think, accommodations made um, for taxpayers who were under the $10,000 um, 164 cap. So we tried to be a little bit flexible on that. Mm -hmm. um, where things are gonna go from now, I mean, there are a lot of discussions underway. We're obviously watching um, part of our job um, at the IRS and obviously at Treasury is to, to you know, look for potential you know, problems out there. And, and TCJA in particular, we wanna make sure um, is efficiently and effectively implemented. Um, so we're looking at a lot of different areas and um, what happens with SALT going forward, I'm not sure. Um, but there certainly have been comments and we've, we've um, been reading about other provisions that are out there, the entity level, um, uh, uh, state, states adopting the entity level um, tax as well, or, or I shouldn't say tax, the entity level um, provisions that mm -hmm. we're looking at. So, but where that goes is, is yet to be determined. And certainly there's been a lot of discussion of the SALT cap in Congress mm -hmm. uh, since it was implemented. Uh, so I want to shift to talk about Congress a little bit. Okay. Uh, so um, Congress passed recently the Taxpayer First Act, 
-hmm. which makes good on some kind of long negotiated provisions that lawmakers have been talking about and um, makes changes to the IRS appeals process, among right. other things. Um, one interesting element of that measure is that it would require the IRS to submit a restructuring plan mm -hmm. to Congress. I realize that the passage of this bill was pretty recent, but I wonder if you've been having any conversations at this point about what that plan would look like. Yeah, so in the Taxpayer First Act, there is a provision that requires the IRS to submit a restructuring report. I think it's by September of next year, so September of 2020. Um, so it is something that, that I know that the IRS commissioner side has been looking at um, and considering. Um, the last restructuring has been more than 20 years ago for the IRS. Um, and council at the time did follow the restructuring that the IRS had implemented into the current LBNI SBSE um, structure that we've got on the commissioner operating division side. So on a um, kind of council level, we're certainly going to work with our clients at the IRS to um, give them some ideas and feedback on structure. As far as our structure is concerned, it will probably wait to see what the IRS decides to do. Um, but we do have ideas. I mean, we are like any other law firm. We, we service our clients, and so we have thoughts and ideas. Um, we work very closely. Um, I work very closely with the commissioner personally, um, and all of our operating divisions and associate offices work with their colleagues on the client side. So we will have some ideas. Um, you know, we're currently aligned on sort of the LB, the large business, small business, tax exempt, you know, that business structure, and we in council follow that alignment. Um, you know, folks have different ideas. In the past, when I first got started in this business, um, there was a territorial, you know, the, the district council offices and, and the districts of the IRS that were more geographic. So, um, you know, people have, you know, pros and cons comments on both structures, mm -hmm. um, and I'm sure there are alternative structures as well. So um, a lot of that is on the table right now, and I'm sure the IRS, when that bill gets signed into law, will be looking um, to what, what to do there. But there are a lot of other things going on as well um, related to restructuring. The IRS has a six-year technology modernization plan in place right now um, that um, you know, some funding will obviously it'll be contingent upon some funding going forward, but um, the secretary has made that a priority. So that is linked into some restructuring thoughts as well. So all of that is related. And we as council will, as I said, advise our clients and give, us, give them our input. Um, but for the moment anyway, kind of defer to how the IRS thinks about restructuring and see where that goes. But it's an interesting, it will be, as you said earlier, an exciting time to be at the IRS um, to be involved in that and to have some input and see where that might go. An exciting time for me too. Right, reporting on it. Yes. Exactly. Uh, and the House passed a funding bill that would give the IRS mm -hmm. um, an increase in funding. Mm -hmm. uh, can you talk a little bit about the importance of, of more funding for the IRS to help mm -hmm. with these priorities? Mm -hmm. Like you mentioned, the modernization plan has some pretty specific uh, benchmarks that the it agency does. plans to yeah. meet. Yeah, so, and, and it's always a challenge, um, you know, from a budget perspective, you know, we obviously defer to the administration and to OMB to put our budgets together, uh, and the president did make a budget request for the IRS, um, but, you know, we are just a small part of the government operations, so, you know, what the House is doing and what the Senate might do, um, you know, is to be determined. Uh, I think we certainly stand behind the administration's budget request for the IRS. Um, you know, there are guns and butter decisions across all of government, and we're not the ones to be making those decisions. Um, so certainly, you know, funding of the IRS is, is, is important, and I think the administration's and the president's budget is, does provide for relatively, you know, robust funding of the IRS. Um, and the secretary's been a very um, strong advocate 
for the funding that's provided for in the administration's budget. So we'll see how that plays out. But um, we've all seen the trends over the years, and I think that the administration's budget does address those. Um, as I said, the modernization plan and the funding for that is also a very high priority and something that uh, the Treasury Department has been very vocal and supportive of as well. Mm -hmm. And obviously the process of making technical corrections mm -hmm. to the tax law has been kind of a constant conversation in Congress, but a slow-moving one, yeah. certainly, so far. Um, and then you also have the request from House Democrats for the president's tax returns, mm -hmm. which probably adds a bit of tension between lawmakers and the administration. Mm -hmm. uh, from your perspective, how has that impacted or perhaps impeded any of your priorities? You know, we just try to make the trains run. So we've got our priorities, they're tax administration focused. We've got a ton of work on our plates and that's what we're focused on. Um, and you'd mentioned earlier uh, that one of your priorities is hiring. Mm -hmm. Can you talk a little bit more about sure. that and what that looks like? Yeah. So over the last five or 10 years, we've had what I call a pause in hiring. Um, and I speak only for council, but this is you know, parallel on the commissioner's side as well. Um, so we've got, um, we've had a decline of about 15 to 20% in our attorney count over the last five or 10 years. Uh, and the attorneys that we're losing um, mostly are to retirements. Um, so we're losing some very valuable talent there. Um, it's been a great time for me to arrive uh, at council um, because we are, for the first time in a number of years, able to hire behind 100% uh, attrition, which has been a great opportunity. We also got some good funding um, as part of the TCJA to bring on some lateral hires who've been instrumental in getting out the TCJA guidance. Um, so over the last year or so, we've been in a very uh, positive position with respect to hiring. We anticipate by the end of September um, hiring behind 100% of attrition this year um, and having a number of new honors attorneys come on board. So that's a great thing for us. Um, a challenge going forward will be to take you know, the younger um, attorneys and, and bring them up to speed and replacing folks who've been at the agency for you know, decades in many cases is going to be a challenge. But um, I've been very encouraged to see particular TCJA hires um, come in and really hit the ground running. Many of those were lateral hires um, who've been able to come into the agency um, at a time where we've got, you know, brand new provisions, um, you know, the first uh, real fundamental tax reform in almost a generation. So we've got a, you know, a lot of um, energized attorneys that are um, embracing the work that they're doing on TCJA provisions. So that's been great to see. Um, and hope to continue that, and certainly will through the end of this fiscal year. And how do you handle that challenge, as you said, when you have experienced uh, mm -hmm. people who are leaving and need people to come up to speed on a pretty, um, there's a time with a lot of things in flux. Yeah, yeah, and it's, I mean, it's really sort of two different parts, because as I said, we've got the technical lawyers in DC doing the reg writing, and a lot of the technical advice, and we've also got um, you know litigators and, and uh, attorneys out in the field that are giving the field advice. So. Sort of two answers to that question, depending on what you're doing. A lot of the attorneys are trying to bring them up to speed and get them litigation experience. Um, and then the folks in DC that are doing the technical work, um, it's just a different skill set. Um, so I think it's, it's bringing in the right mix of people, um, elevating the right mix of people. So ensuring that we've got strong internal leadership pipelines um, so that when people leave at senior levels, we've got you know, some legacy planning um, so that folks are um, able to step up into um, executive and management positions. So it's just a different exercise out in the field from what it is in DC um, in the technical offices. Um, and, and it's um, in many respects sort of decentralized. We do rely very heavily 
um, on our associate offices in DC, our technical offices, to identify within their special areas, you know, the, the right needs and mix of people to bring in um, and to promote internally. Um, and as you might imagine, you know, folks that work in the accounting world know who the accounting attorneys are, both internally and externally. Um, it's a little bit different in the field where we bring in people who are looking to do more litigation, uh, particularly in the small business and self-employed group where most of our litigators are. So it's just a different skill set. But um, each of those litigating divisions and associate offices do have a fair amount of um, autonomy in terms of how they pursue hiring. Um, and at the national office level, we just try to decide where the needs are allocating different hiring slots and that kind of thing. Um, and then working with them to ensure that there is some uh, particularly executive leadership planning for the longer term. Mm -hmm. And listening to some of the sessions this morning, it's clear certainly that this is a pretty uncertain time for mm -hmm. multinational companies as they're trying to figure out exactly what the tax law changes mean for them. Right. I'd be interested from your perspective if, uh, if you have conversations about that, that kind of uncertainty or if you mm -hmm. have a kind of a comment on uh, on how that how companies are grappling with yeah, and provision. it's been interesting to hear. I know that um, you know a lot of the work that's being done. It's been talked about quite a bit this morning in terms of modeling, um, and companies need to look at the interrelationship between particularly international provisions. Um, you can't just look at any provision in isolation. Um, it's the intersection between the guilty and the beat and the fide, and, and that requires modeling and planning. And I realize that's a very complex exercise um, for taxpayers. Um, we may be in a little bit different position because we're looking at it from the other side. Um, we certainly do realize there's an intersection between many of the provisions um, and, and we're cognizant of that. Um, we just see it from a, a, a different perspective. But I do think, you know, going forward, it will be interesting to see how um, once TCGA provisions get implemented, there's gonna be a lot of work initially to do this modeling, to do the implementation. I know there'll be some restructurings underway. Um, you know, I think the TCJ in many respects was, was intended to, to facilitate that. Um, but longer term, what will happen? Um, and I've talked a little bit about, for example, the transfer pricing work that we do. Um, very large cases, huge commitment of resources on our part to um, examine and litigate transfer pricing cases. You know, what will TCJ do long term in terms of the you know, dynamic and transfer pricing cases? Will it um, create new and different pressures? Will it relieve pressure? Is it going to shift things in different directions? So it will be interesting to see the longer term consequences of TCJA. Um, and, and I know everyone, including counsel, is very focused now on the, on the immediate job at hand, but we are also trying to look down the road um, and see how that all plays out. And what are some of your priorities on the guidance side uh, once the TCJA guidance is done. Uh, so looking, yeah, like you said, down the road. Certainly. Yeah, and there are some. I mean, one that comes to mind immediately is for partnerships. Um, we've just, um, independent of TCJA, um, gotten almost to the end of um, the guidance that we need to get out to uh, implement the uh, BBA, the partnership audit rules, they're replacing the TEFRA rules. So, um, and that's an area similar to what we're doing with TCJA that we're starting to work with our clients, the IRS, um, I see the BBA as, as, as a mandate to increase our audit activity in that area. Um, so we're certainly working with our clients to figure out how to do that. Um, that's one area that I think we're, we're focused on. Um, and, and it's not after TCJA, it is, it is on a parallel track and we're working on that currently. As I said, those regulations um, are, are pretty close to being wrapped up, those projects. Um, but there's a lot of work to do to work with our clients on implementation of those provisions. So that's certainly a high priority. Um, and we've got a number of um, independent TCJ enforcement priorities as well. Um, there's been a lot of talk about 
Um, some of what we've seen in litigation with micro-captive insurance cases, um, we've got a number, a very large number of those docketed in tax court. Um, also with um, conservation easements are, are very uh, significant resource commitment from council. Um, and I sort of plug those in as illustrations of what we're trying to do longer term. The number of cases we have pending in those areas, um, they are not all going to be litigated to trial. They just can't be um, from the taxpayer's perspective or ours. But I think we would like to think more generally about, you know, obviously keeping cases out of litigation by giving the good guidance on the front end so that things don't end up in litigation. But if that happens, you know, how do we figure out a way to get um, cases like that resolved um, over the longer term um, under terms that are acceptable to both taxpayers and to the IRS? So, you know, ways of getting cases resolved and streamlining the um, controversy process is, is something I've been focused on as well. And can you talk about the, the road ahead for conservation easements? It's been mm -hmm. interesting, the IRS listed syndicated easements as a listed transaction mm -hmm. a couple of years ago now. And there's been a lot of discussion of it at the congressional mm -hmm. level too, especially on Senate finance. Right. Um, what, what is next for the agency in, in dealing with that? Well, I think that's to be determined. As I said, we've got a number of cases. Um, a number just went to trial recently. Um, so we're still trying to think about what the road ahead looks like. As I said, there's no way that we're gonna take to trial every single syndicated conservation easement case that's out there. So we need to figure out the right path forward for that. Um, right now, the immediate steps are that we will get cases that get filed. Uh, that's what we do. You know, stat notices are issued, and you know, petitions are filed, and answers are filed, and and we move forward. But but that's not, uh, you know, we, we don't look at it. Just you know, every case has to go to trial because it can't. So we need to figure out, you know, what the long-term solution is. Um, and you know, it's not litigating to trial and and win 500 cases and then we start settling. You know, there's obviously a middle ground there somewhere. So we're trying to think. Um, generally about how to resolve, um, you know, those cases over the longer term, what that framework might look like. So, um, but I think we want to think about that not just in the isolated context of the current cases, but, um, you know, longer term, is there a way that we can think about, you know, streamlining the, the litigation process, the controversy process. Um, so all of that is, is something that's underway. Great. Uh, Michael and Colleen, thank you so much. At this point, we'd like to take a couple of questions that have come in from the audience. Uh, the first one is, I realize it's early, but how do you plan to cope with the possibility that the Supreme Court will abolish the Chevron deference? <laughs> well, I guess it's early. We did see a decision yesterday that you know people have been uh, commenting on from the Supreme Court. So, um, you know, right now I think we just focus on what the current state of the law is and don't try to speculate as to how it might change. We're certainly prepared um, if necessary. Um, so it's something that we watch and we're interested in from a, an academic and planning perspective. But um, in terms of what we're doing, what we're writing, what we're publishing, um, you know, regulations get Chevron deference, uh, below regulations. Um, we've got a Treasury policy statement that says what our position is there. We don't argue for um, deference, um, Chevron at deference anyway, to sub-regulatory guidance. So um, stay tuned. All right, terrific, thank you. And second question. Uh, what will what will the IRS do, or what can it do, or what is it going to do to adapt to ever-changing technology? Mm -hmm. Well, as I said, the um, service um, and Treasury have a six-year modernization plan, um, and everyone knows the challenges that we have with technology. Um, so I think uh, you know there have been modernization plans before that haven't gotten us um, to 2019. So we are focused on that. We as council certainly see a lot of benefits to getting um, 
attaching ourselves to the modernization plan if that's rolled out. So there's a lot of work internally. Um, so we have a lot of work to do there, but I think there is a very robust plan um, that we've put out and published that will talk about what we're doing there and you know, look forward to utilizing technology um, both on the commissioner side and the council side to make our jobs a lot easier and streamline a lot of what we're doing and get away from a paper universe that we're working in now. Great, thank you. And I think we have time for one last one. Um, does the treasurer anticipate issuing final 861 cloud computing regulations in the upcoming months? <laughs> of course, considering that we have it a lot of ties looking happening. at me. Um, <laughs> I'll have to get back to you on that. So yeah, I, I know it's on the, on the, it's been raised, but uh, I, I can't really speculate as to you know, what we're going to do in the immediate future on that. Fair enough. Thank you so much. Good. Let's give a, a great big round of applause. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you, Michael and Colleen. For more on this and other stories, visit news.bloombergtax.com. Just a quick note, we'll be off next week celebrating the 4th of July holiday. That's it for this week's edition of Talking Tax. From Washington, I'm Amanda Icone. Suspending the Rules is Bloomberg Government's weekly deep dive into what's happening on Capitol Hill. As is often the case with suspension bills, there's something of a theme behind them. Every Monday, BGov reporters and legislative analysts preview the week in Congress. This would be a rejection of what the Trump administration called for. And break down the biggest bills on the agenda. Autonomous vehicles are going to know everything about where we go and what we're doing. You can listen and subscribe to Suspending the Rules wherever you get your podcasts. Find more information at about dot bgov dot com.